founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are joined by Brian Daly, co-founder and CEO of Ground Floor. Brown that started at the University of Virginia and went all the way to Harvard where he attended both business and law school. Brian is not new to the startup industry. In the past 15 years, he's been part of startups in Silicon Valley, Boston, London, and the North Carolina Triangle region. Fast forward to present day. Ground Floor is a nationwide real estate lending marketplace. Proudly, Ground Floor is the first real estate company to achieve SEC qualification, utilizing Regulation A since the regulation became operable through the Jobs Act. And we are pumped to have Brian on the show today. Welcome, buddy. Good to be with you. Yes, sir. So you just made me jealous that you are um, in Telluride right now, staring outside at some beautiful mountains. That's not a bad place to be. I have a very good view outside right now. Yes. I love it. Well, hopefully it's a great view for a great conversation. Yeah. Let's go. All right. First question, same question every time for our audience. They'll know it well. What is what were sorry the series of events that led you to doing what you're doing today? Well, I started tinkering with startups on the on the web, internet startups, way back in 1996. Okay, uh, I was the kind of kid in high school who uh, you know took some computer science classes, taught myself a lot about how to write software. I, I never did really become a software engineer professionally, but I always played with it and I was always fascinated with it. And after college, I was a management consultant. As a management consultant, I was at a Fortune 500 company where they were rolling out web browsers to everybody's PC. Yes. You can imagine, right? Like there was nothing to go do except like go to the whitehouse.gov site or the NASA. <laughs> There's nowhere to go. Yeah. Right. Nothing to do. Um, but I was fascinated with it. And uh, I also kind of had a, a bug of entrepreneurialism, you know, where I, I wanted to start a company. I didn't, didn't know what my idea would be. Uh, but I used that interest just in building software to build my first website. Uh, you know, for those of you who are engineers out there, my IDE was Notepad. You know, there was uh, there was no real development environment you know, yeah, yeah. out there. It's like Cold Fusion, and maybe like there are a couple other things. I used Active Server pages, but you know, I I just used that to sort of pursue this interest of mine, and I ended up starting two more companies while I was in grad school. Uh, one with a VC who was kind of he ultimately took that company public. I worked on that as like a class project. Wow! I did another startup with some friends uh, during my fourth year of school where they actually got funded by NEA at the end of it uh, in 1999. For Series a, but I realized I really needed to have a real job. Uh, I went out to Silicon Valley and I worked for a couple public internet companies there, uh, you know, around 1999 to 2004, 2005. And wow. from that point, I just worked my way earlier and earlier to being a founder. You know, I, I knew I wanted to be a founder. I knew I had a lot to learn about how to lead people, build products, you know, uh, court investors. And I was very fortunate to land in positions where I had, you know, good training for that. You know, I did a startup in uh, North Carolina that was uh, like Series B funded startup. I did a uh, called Motricity that went public. I was part of a management team uh, for a startup in England for a startup that got a Series A investment. And I was part of the team that came in for that. Wow. So I worked my way earlier and earlier 
stage to where I was a founder again. I had a, I had a startup in Boston that uh, when I came back to the United States that didn't make it to Series A funding. We got seed funding. We would make it. And so I've had enough kind of ups and downs and swings at bat where, uh, you know, starting Ground Floor came on the heels of starting Republic Wireless, which I started inside another company. I was like the first employee that led a division to build a wireless division in this telecom company. Wow. And it was amazing. It was a, it was a Republic Wireless is a great company. It's, a, it's still a standalone company that got spun out. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it kind of got so far along that, you know, it's time for me to go off and do my own thing, you know, mm-hmm. outside of, you know, sort of the structure of a company. And that's when I started ground floor. Um, you know, it's pretty, pretty interesting story from there about what we did in order to get it going. But that's, that's the arc of the journey that got me to ground floor. Yeah. Well, let me go back. I want to go back to that late nineties, early two thousands, where you find yourself in Silicon Valley. So that was, that was late high school, early college for me. And so I don't know it personally, but I, you know, from reading several biographies on, you know, Elon Musk or whoever, uh, that was from what I gathered around the dot com, you know, boom and bust, right. Where, Yes. Supposedly, and this is what I'm curious about from your vantage point, what it was like being in the valley at that time where some were taking off and going wild and others were just complete money pits that did not. It it was magical, right? Because, uh, you know, companies were going public quickly, you know, for what at the time seemed like crazy valuations. They would look like small valuations today. Sure. Right. A lot of companies are going public well before they had unicorn status in today's parlance. Right. Yeah. Um, so, but it was magical because everybody had this idea that the web would be important. Um, but it wasn't at all clear what protocols, what intermediaries, what uh, properties, what technologies would really uh, succeed, you know, and, and I had this experience sort of at Excite where we merged with at home network and became a big provider of cable broadband. Like at the time, you know, we were proud that we got to like 5 million households, you know, on our network. Like that was a lot. You know, I was product manager for uh, web-based email. We had 20 million users. We felt like that was a lot. You know, um, now it'd be like really small, you know? So the scale was a lot smaller, but the, the, um, there were so many more unknowns, you know, about what this technology would do. And And I went from that company to a, a wireless internet company called OpenWave that had the world's most broadly distributed web browser for mobile phones. We mm. shipped a billion phones with our technology on it. The problem was, you know, of those billion phones, a very tiny fraction were used because they were flip phones, you know, yes. like Java phones. But once again, there was there was a lot of jockeying for position for distribution and standards and a lot of smart people were drawn into the industry back then. And, you know, the people that I learned from at that stage of my career, I mean, I, I still benefit from that today. You know, like yeah. I worked for some amazing people out there uh, at that early stage of my career. So was that was that time period for you? Because I'm sure I know for a fact Silicon Valley's obviously gone through just like anything else. It's gone through like different seasons, right? Oh yeah. And that time was it fun, collaborative, exciting? Was it cutthroat, competitive? Like how would you characterize? I would characterize it as as fun and collaborative, you know, Mm. I think very entrepreneurial. I think people didn't have, I mean, you definitely had the, the, the phase where companies got public and all of a sudden there were a lot of expensive cars in the parking lot. Sure. Sure. 
all, all the Toyota Camrys are gone and you're like, right. Hey, yeah, there's definitely that. And I think maybe that started to change the place, but I think there was still this kind of, I remember going, um, I was playing at a, like a golf tournament with some friends, uh, you know, like 2001 and we had all left excite and a few of them were, were, you know, considering joining this company called Google, you know, which, you know, we all know what Google is now, but at the right. time we're like, why does the world need another search engine? And what makes that, you know, like, why would you do that with your career? You know, mm. why don't you go into wireless or, you know, whatever. And those guys were right, you know, and they, they had a fantastic, you know, that was a fantastic career choice for them. Sure. But nobody knew, right. Yeah. There, there wasn't, um, you know, there was just, there just wasn't as much sort of ballast behind it, right. There were a lot, many more unknowns. And so I think people were kind of humble about that. That's you know, awesome. In my experience. Awesome. So let's fast forward to when you, you just mentioned as you went to start ground floor, you said it's, yeah. there's an interesting story or it's, it was, uh, I, I would just be curious to hear, how did you get it off the ground? Like, well, so I had been in the wireless industry for 10 years, yeah. you know, or maybe more, gosh, at the time. Yeah. Probably about 10 years. And I loved the wireless industry, but as a condition of my release, you know, I promised not to compete in the wireless right. industry. So I knew I wanted to be a founder. I knew I wanted to take what I experienced in building that wireless company. And I wanted to apply what I learned as an entrepreneur mm. from that to what I was going to do in the next sort of venture. And the way that I would characterize what I noticed as an entrepreneur is, you know, I told the story about how in 1996, I built my first, you know, website, you know, myself by hand, you know, in Notepad. I think the thing that has always um, captured my imagination about the web is about the way it can be used to organize people. Mm. And so whether you look in ph philanthropy or politics or finance, I mean, pick your, you know, pick your area, right? Um, the web and its open protocols are probably the greatest organizing platform that we've ever seen. Absolutely. And, and I don't care. As an entrepreneur, what I realized is I don't care whether, you know, we all think people are smart enough to make their own decisions, to take matters into their own hands. You know, we can all debate that. I, I tend to think people are smarter than we give them credit for. Uh, you know, I, I, my faith informs me of that. I think, you know, I, I, I tend to think, I come down on the side that people are yeah. smarter, uh, smart enough to make their own decisions and to manage their own agency. Um, but a lot of people don't think that. Right. A lot of people think people have no business, you know, doing some of the things that they're doing on the web. Like, look at what happened with GameStop. Right. I mean, oh, these dumb people, you know, they're sheep. They don't know what they're doing. Right. Look, the fact is, whether they're smart enough or capable enough or capable enough or not, they're going to behave as though they are. And right. as an entrepreneur, I've always loved that. And I've said, well, I've thought to myself, what is it that I can do as an entrepreneur to channel that and create value out of that? And with our wireless company, we said, you can have a wireless network anywhere you want. Anywhere there's a Wi-Fi a Wi-Fi router, you can have that. And when you're driving in your car and there isn't Wi-Fi, we're just going to build the mobile network into the phone as a backup. Wow. And by consequence of that, no contracts, right? A $20 a month price, actually it was a $19 a month price, which at the, at the time was ridiculously cheap for an unlimited smartphone plan. Now you can get that a lot of different places, but we were the first to drive wow. to that you know, aggressively low price point. And what was even more powerful about it is not only were more people able to afford a smartphone because of that, 
every time they bought one, they kind of felt like they were sticking it to the man. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And they were motivated and they're motivated to tell other people about it and say the world can be different. And when you have a motivated group of people who think the world can be different and you give them a platform where they can make the world different, you can create a lot of value as an entrepreneur. And that's what has captivated me for many, many years of doing this. It's what I've realized I really love about the internet, about internet tech and internet sort of psychology, social psychology. Um, so when I went to start ground floor, you know, I was asking people, all right, what's the next industry, right? Where you feel like you gotta have what this industry provides to you, but you don't like the way that the incumbents give it to you. Mm. Because I looked at that and said, could we create new ways of doing healthcare or cable TV, you know, cable entertainment or IPTV, or I, I was really interested in finance. And that one kind of drew me in because I've been an investor since I was about 15 years old. You know, my dad taught me to, you know, he said, look, anything you put aside from your summer earnings, I'll match it. You just got to go to the library and find out what a mutual fund is. Uh, you know, back then you, you couldn't go on the web. You had to, you know, in the eighties, you had to, uh, you know, go to the library and find Morningstar. Right. Um, right. And, and figure out like what, what a mutual fund even was. But I, as, as a, as somebody who'd invested since age 15, I was very curious about how investors could be mobilized mm. using web technology. And also I, I kept hearing in 2012 about this, you know, jobs act, you know, that was liberalizing the way we invest in form capital. And I, and uh, fortunately for me, I met a great co-founder who's an expert in that, you know, we started kicking around ideas and, and I think our collaboration uh, and our shared vision about what we wanted to do in finance uh, same thing that I did with my wireless company. Yeah, I think that that was the foundation of everything that came from it. You know, finding wow. a good co-founder who really shares your deeply held personal convictions about why this startup, why you for this startup, why this mission. Yeah, I think that that was a game changer for me right from the get go in uh, late 2012, early 2013, meeting Nick. Man, uh, there's so many things you said I want to I want to touch on. So I want to pause yeah. here so we don't we don't get too far sure. away from them. Yeah. Uh, starting with the one you just mentioned was about finding a great co-founder. This has come up a bunch on the podcast, you know. And there's been what I love is that there's been a successful examples of both. There's been people right. that love having a partner, couldn't mm -hmm. imagine doing it another way. Other people that are like, I like doing it by myself. I don't care. I think depending on your personality right. and your business, yes. both can work. But if right. you're going right. for a partner what you just mentioned seems to be critical and comes up again, that there's an alignment of values. Correct. That like on those kind of core things, we're very similar in terms of values, but that there's yes. a great distinction or even a, a um, diversity of skill sets. Correct. So it's like they're in many ways, my opposite in terms of skill sets or yes. network or whatever, but we're aligned well, in what matters. You know, and we noticed that I, I, I'll share a couple of elements of that that I think may be interesting to people or helpful as, as they go through the process uh, or reflect on having gone the process through the process themselves. Um, you know, we noticed our complementarity right when we started doing phone calls. Like we were we were doing phone calls to uh, to pitch law firms on doing all this legal work for us. We had no money, of course, right? We knew it would be a, a lot of legal work. You know, yeah. six figures and then some in legal work. And we wanted to do it before we had capital. So we kind of needed them to come on board almost as a co-founder, you know? And so we pitched, I don't know, a dozen law firms, but right from the first one, you know, where it's like, okay, let's start the call. We almost fell into it right away. Like I was the pitch guy. 
you know, I would tee it up. I'd talk about the vision. I'd be all excited and bouncing off the walls and trying to get people fired up about it. And Nick would then come in coolly and say, and based on our analysis of the legal, you know, the regulations and, and the legal framework and where things are going, here are some ways that we think we could do this. And so he was in this connection, the technician, right? Cool, calm, like, and I yeah. saw it right away. And that has been true, even if we're dealing with like a, a people issue, like just this morning, we were dealing with a people issue and we decided to divide and conquer because we know each other well enough now. Yeah, It's obvious what our complementarity is. Yes, And that has, we, we've had no co-founder drama, yeah. you know, over eight years. And I think that's down to the fact that, you know, when we, we are such good compliments in that way, but we even did the work before we decided to start the company to get to know each other. And we, you know, we, we went through long whiteboarding sessions. Like we found a list of questions you should ask your co-founder, you know, before you start yeah. <laughs> out there on the web, it's, I, I, I could, probably produced the link. I think I came across the artifact the other day where we were actually taking notes on it and taking photos of the whiteboards. But we we really went deep. We were like, why are we doing this? What do we want out of this? What do you want to do? What do I want to do? How does this fit into our career? How does it fit into your life? Yeah. Who's in your life that's going to be affected by this? You know, and you know, we just went really deep over the course of two or three months. I think that was important. The complementary important was important. That process was important. And the third thing that was important is we looked at each other one day and we said, after we'd had a couple of these calls, after we'd done a ton of whiteboarding sessions, gotten to know each other, we looked at each other and we said, okay, are we truly prepared to stop doing everything else we're doing and only do this? Yeah. Do we believe in it enough? And I learned this way back in 1996, what creates value at the earliest stage is the co-founder's commitment. Mm. You know, and commitment means, as I understand the term, uh, that you personally are willing to give up other things in favor. Now, we as entrepreneurs, we all think, well, I can do it all. I can multitask. I can, but there's real value to you psychologically, spiritually, you know, definitely put me in a position of dependence. You know, like my faith is an incredibly important part of my entrepreneuring. And it put me in a position of dependence where I didn't have an out. And so, you know, I, of course, had all the fears that my, that our idea wasn't good or that it wouldn't work or that I would be embarrassed, you know, for it yeah. not working. And that's part of what keeps us wanting to keep other lines in the water. But keeping other lines in the water, in my view, limits the wood behind the arrow of what you've decided to do. Yeah, that's right. And there's nothing else at the earliest stage besides your decision to do it. Yeah. That's all there is. Yeah, you know? man. Oh, there's no product. There's no customer. There's no milestone. There's no capital raise. Like there's just you. Right. Are you committed to this? And if you're not, then that's okay. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Drag other people into it. Don't like, like we went off and hired our, our, uh, you know, we had two employees, one who, was able to join us and work for equity for a while, who had worked with me at a previous company. Another guy who had worked with me at a previous company, couldn't do it for equity, but he was he was not our first employee. He was the first employee we valued enough to pay, you know, our CTO. Yeah. Today. <laughs> um, you know, and I had to pay him myself because we didn't have any capital, yeah. right? Now, you know, like, is he going to leave his job that feeds his family if I'm not committed 100%? That's right. Is he even going to bother spending nights and weekends? Like people rally around that. And I think it, it's, I think it's um, in entrepreneur and founder culture. I think it's a little 
misunderstood or probably uh, underestimated how much that commitment matters. Absolutely, man. I, just from my own story, I pivoted out of one career to a totally different career yeah. at about age 30 and had some runway cash, as I would uh, call it, where I was giving myself, I knew it was going to take time yep. and had runway cash to, yep. to try to get it off the ground. And I was about six months in and I was watching that runway, I was, you know, moving pretty fast on that runway. Yes. And I was like, oh man, I started, you know, other people now that in a sense, I was a free agent. I was working for myself. We're like, man, you should come try this over here with me. You should get into this real estate play with yeah. me. Yeah. And I remember like, I'm going to seek out, uh, at the time he was my most successful friend. So I'm like, all right, I got a lot of friends with a lot of different values, like value, but this guy has like done some stuff. Right. So I, I drove an hour to meet with him for lunch and I thought he was gonna be really proud of me. I was yeah. like, look at the options. I'm thinking about basically diversifying, you know, yeah. my time and my money right now to make this yeah. a little safer for my like family. Portfolio. Yeah. And he, <laughs> and he's a financial manager too. So I was like, right. he's going to love this. Yeah. And he goes, I get down with my, almost like pitching him. And he said, do you want my honest thoughts? I was like, I drove an hour to have lunch with you. I would kill you. for your honest yeah. thoughts. <laughs> and he said, I think you're scared and you're making the wrong move. And I was like, what? I was like, what do you mean? He goes, man, from everything I've seen, success requires you to be 100% focused and committed. And he said, these feel like smart options to you, but it's almost going to guarantee the failure of the thing you set out to do. So he's wow. like, if you still believe in the thing you set uh -oh. out to do, yeah. he's like, I need you to, to sit. To, he said, I need you going to sleep thinking about it and waking up thinking about it. Right. And he's like, cause you're going to have to like make pivots and you're going to have to like really give it your soul to get it off the ground. Yeah. And I, to this day, the only reason I am where I am is I walked away from that conversation, shut down all those other opportunities. Yeah. And I yeah. said, all right, let's make this freaking thing work. Like what a cool story. I love oh, that. Man, it was unbelievable. But that was where I learned that from him uh, was he was saying like the only way, like the safe option is actually to go all in. Yeah, like give it all your attention, exactly. give it all your, and he's like, if it fails, fine. Like, and by the way, it's a litmus test too. How right? so? It's well, it's a litmus test because look, if, if you have a hesitation about doing that, there will be much more disruptive tests. That's right. On the road. Yeah. And the problem is with every step that you take in your startup journey, you're drawing more people in. That's right. You know? And you don't want to be a fraud. You know, we all have yeah. imposter syndrome, right? We all, right. we all suffer from that. You don't want to add to that story, right? I mean, that's, right. that's the enemy story, right? Talking to you. That's, that, is, that is a voice that's non-productive and not good. And we want to shut that out. And one way is just by being faithful and dedicated. That's right. You know? And I think if, if you're not ready to do that, I think that's important to look at. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Because it'll be tested much more severely than that decision. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, well, that was it, man. Some real ups and downs and getting from, you know, zero revenue in 2013 to, you know, last year we did over $6 million in revenue. You know, I mean, we, we thought we'd have grown even faster, but even looking at that, like we've been tested time and time again. Yeah. That point. Let's talk, let's talk about that some, because that's another common uh, so many paths are different, yet they do experience very similar themes, yeah. right? Yeah. And one of them that seems unavoidable is the moments of despair. 
Oh, yeah. Moments of gut check. Oh, that was not what I expected. Last year, everybody went through that, right? (laughs) Pandemic hit and no one could see that coming and all financial models were changed. And so for you, what have been maybe two or three things? uh, That's an arbitrary number, but what have been a few things? I'll I'll tell you the first one uh, that came up for me was I mentioned, you know, that we had brought on a couple of employees, one working for equity, one that I needed to pay until we raised money. Uh, which, you know, was a gut check. Cause I had that same kind of, it's interesting. You said it's like your cash, you know, your runway. Yeah. I had the same thing and I'm like, okay, I just shortened my runway by bringing this guy on. Okay. That's a gut check. I'm going to do it. Well, I had been talking to angel investors for probably six months, you know, and there were people who were interested in me as an entrepreneur, interested in what I'd done at Republic wireless, very curious to hear what I was thinking about, you know, in this new area. Um, you know, but I couldn't get anyone to pull the trigger to write a big enough check to make a difference. Yeah. And I knew we needed, you know, maybe at the time, now it seems like such a small amount of money, but every step seems small in retrospect, right? Sure. Yeah. I, I felt like if we had $150,000, that would allow us to pilot the concept, you know, that we had built. And I thought, okay, I know where that money is going to go. I know I need it. I, you know, and I kept getting good feedback from angel investors, but nobody was pulling the trigger. And it was funny because I had, you know, this one uh, investor who said, look, you know, um, I, I, I like this idea. I think it's good, but, and I know about real estate, but I don't really know about startups. And I had another investor who said, you know, I know about startups, but I don't really know about real estate. If I could just, it's so just like, could I just get both of these guys in so that I could break the log jam? And I was really stressing about this. I was at a venture conference in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I, uh, I happened to go get a cup of coffee from our little table, you know, where the three of us were, you know, hanging out, talking to people, hoping to find an investor, you know, whatever, or customers. And, uh, you know, I walked over to the coffee stand and, um, you know, I bumped into uh, to the CEO of Bandwidth, David Morgan, who's mm-hmm. an entrepreneur. I really admire him. He's had a huge impact on me over the years. Uh, and the company that he's built at Bandwidth and now taken public is amazing. And, uh, you know, I bumped into him. He's like, so how's it going with the fundraising? How's the company going? And I said, well, David, I got to be honest with you. I have people who are telling me they want to do it, but they won't pull the trigger. I don't know how to get them over the edge. And he's like, well, what about Michael Goodman at Capital Broadcasting? You know, he called me about you. I think he's going to invest. And I said, well, that's news to me. Uh, you know, I don't know. Everybody keeps looking around at each other saying, well, if so-and-so invests, all of us. He's, and he got this look on his face. I'll never forget. You know, it's like, you know what? People told me that in the early days of bandwidth and somebody did something for me to break that log jam. I'm going to do the same thing for you. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you go tell Michael that I'm in for 50K and he should be too. And I was Come like, on. I was like, David, you haven't even seen my pitch deck. You know, you, I haven't really like pitched you on the business. It's really nice of you, but are you sure? He's like, I know all, I've heard all I need to know. You're committed to this. You're going to make it successful. You go, you go tell Michael I'm in for 50 and he should too. And I went back to the table. I was like, Hey guys, I just raised 50 K <laughs> the way there. And they're all like, Woo, you know, great. Later in the day I said, Hey, I was joking around. I'm like, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee and I'm going to come back with another 50 K. All right. And, you know, I was just joking. Yeah. Well, I'm not kidding you. This is how God does it, right? I'm walking toward toward the table to get coffee, bump into a guy who works for Michael at Capital Broadcasting, Adam Klein. And he goes, hey, Brian, uh, 
how's it going with the startup? And I told them the same story. I said, you know, dude, I'm like having a hard time getting the first money in, you know, it's, we're ready to go. Like I'm really, you know, I think we got a good thing. And he's like, he's like, well, um, I said, you know, I really want to talk to Michael, you know, I got to talk to Michael and see if he's really going to be in. He's like, Oh, Michael, he's like right out in the hallway. Why don't you <laughs> and I was like, he is. He's like, yeah, I'll take you to him right now. We walked over there. I walked right up to Michael and I, I got a big smile on my face. I said, Michael, good to see you. He's like, how's it going? I said, well, funny. You should ask. I just bumped into David Morgan. He told me to tell you that he's in for 50 and you should be too. And he got this big smile on his face and he's like, all right, I'll do it. Come and that's on. How we raised our first money. Right. But I was like at my wits end and it's nothing that I did that was so amazing, right? It was being obedient to the process, you know, being humble enough to admit that I was struggling, yeah, right? Yeah, Meaning yeah. That, asking others to come alongside me and help me. And they did, you know, and, you know, we raised 125 in that first round and then we tacked on another 25 a month or two later, once we met a couple more angel investors who were in for the ride. And then we were taken off, you know, then we were really kind of, we had enough money to pilot the concept. The pilot wasn't successful, by the way. Mm. The pilot, like, was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it failed in a sense, but it provided the the seeds of the success that came after it. You know. Well, let's talk about that because that yeah. that could be something that knocks somebody out. You already had sure. an adventure. You already had such a feat to get yeah. to even funding the pilot, and then the yeah. pilot doesn't go the way you thought it it's was. How working. does it? How does that not ruin you? How, how did you still continue to succeed from there? Well, I'll tell you what, um, I just kept trying. Uh, you know, we tried all kinds of things to get it going. We, we really laid it all out on the field. And as part of that, I went to this dinner where I was the guest of honor. You know, there were like maybe 20, 25 people there at a, you know, dinner club in Atlanta. You know, the, the, the guy that, agreed to be our first customer, had all of his real estate buddies, you know, come to this dinner. And I was to give a talk on crowdfunding in real estate and what would, what would that would look like. And so I did it. And then at the end of my talk, you know, um, one of the members of the group said, okay, so having heard this, like, who's in, you know, who's in, who's going to fund this first project? You know, we got to get this first project done to make this happen, you know, for this entrepreneur, each person go around and say what, say if you're willing to come in and what you're willing to do. Right. Wow. Well, yeah. Wow. You know what? They, it went around like we got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it was so painful because like there was this big buildup and I was so dejected, dude. Cause I was like, okay, now we're going to finally get it over the yeah. hurdle. The first project, by the way, was a $300,000 loan. We now fund $300,000 loans, like several of them a week. You know, we did wow. $1.2 million in funding just, you know, Wednesday of this week, you know, like, you know, it's totally different today, but back then everything felt so hard. And what came out of that, as I was like, you know, my tail between my legs, like kind of walking back, you know, getting ready to go to my hotel and like have another sleepless night. This guy walks up to me, his name's John Mangum and he became our first customer. And John said to me, he said, look, man, uh, that was pretty rough watching that. I, I don't like the way that went. You know, I, I feel like those guys should have been willing to pony up, you know, and commit. And I said, yeah, I mean, it's not for everybody. You know, it's okay. You know, 
well, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, and then he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, look, I don't do the type of real estate projects that all these guys do, these commercial things. I, I flip houses. You know, I work down in these Southwestern, you know, Atlanta uh, neighborhoods. Here's what I do. He's like, I think your concept would really work, you know, in what I do. And I didn't really even know about house flipping except for the TV shows, right? I didn't know sure, how they sure. or how people did it. And that guy had the vision and he said, I want to try it. And sure enough, about maybe two weeks later, we had one of his projects up for financing. We funded that project in, you know, about five days, you know, $40,000 loan, you know, 39 investors came in on it. Uh, we then had the good fortune to meet somebody else who was doing a similar scale project that one funded in 48 hours. And then we knew we were off and running, but wow. it was quite a low, you know, that project actually never went forward, you know, like really? failure anyway, even had we funded it, it's actually a good thing. We didn't fund it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Man. So I, think, I, I still think that's a vacant lot on Charles Allen drive actually, as I think of it. Uh, <laughs> so this, this took off in Atlanta. It did. Yeah. We were, we started the company in uh, Durham and Raleigh in the triangle, North Carolina. Yeah. Um, but we, we were traveling down to Atlanta and using this, is the other humbling thing, right? There were so many startups in my space that were like growing really fast and raising venture capital. And I was like, what's wrong with us? You know, but we had a really unique strategy that a lot of people didn't understand. Yeah. And that strategy was to open up this class of investing to everybody and to create you know, the next great mass market investment product. We didn't want to just be a platform for accredited investors and institutions to syndicate deals. We just, it just wasn't interesting to me. Sure. You know, what the mission of the company really was. And uh, so we had to plug away in the state of Georgia. We could only solicit Georgia investors. You know, we could only finance Georgia projects. And so we were very, very small scale for a long time while we were going through the regulatory process and in that process, we learned that North Carolina's environment wasn't going to be favorable for us. You know, we were working through the legislature, we were working with regulators, and we learned, like reading the reading the tea leaves, it wasn't ever going to work in North Carolina. Mm. And so we decided this is a tough one. This is another gut check. In 2014, we picked up and relocated the company to Atlanta from North Carolina. Wow. Uh, it was a ballsy move. Uh, we thought we were within a few months of getting our SEC qualification. It turns out we were a year and three months away. <laughs> you know, it was it was a lot longer than we than we bargained for. Wow. But we picked up. You know, three of us shared a, a, an Airbnb in Morningside. Uh, you know, with a with a, one of one of us had a puppy that was peeing all over the floor. I mean, it was a great <laughs> startup. You know, story. Um, but that move to Atlanta was critical too. Like that was another key moment, you know, where, yeah, you know, we all left our lives in Raleigh and Durham and said, Atlanta is the place to build this. And we were right. You know, we met our VC in Atlanta. We met a lot of customers in Atlanta. We've hired a lot of great employees there. Maybe that would have happened in, in North Carolina too, but I think Atlanta was a real accelerant for us, you know, being, yeah. in man, you know, it's, there's, I wish I could cite who I heard this from to give them some credit, but somebody I was listening to that's, you know, a serial entrepreneur was talking about how early on the main goal is just to stay alive. That if you can keep the business open one more day, one more yep. day, you yep. increase your chances of meeting the right person, finally getting the break, Correct. you know, that kind of thing. And that helped me too. just going like, Hey, the real goal right now is not to how quick to a million or it's like, right. stay alive, 
right? With every knock to the chin, like, can I still stay alive? You know, one of the things we did early on as well is we tried to decide what values we could inculcate into the company as we expanded it and brought new people on. Uh, What values did we need to embrace in order to build a durable company Mm. that would attract the right kind of people? You know, sure. sure. Um, And I know a lot's been written about core values and culture. And, you know, I I was frankly skeptical of a lot of it. Um, But I, I did know it was important for us to be a certain kind of people to be successful. And I think one thing we did right early on, because you talk about that, like, how do you stay alive one more day? You know, there's certain, there's certain trades you need to be willing to make. You got to be flexible enough to make, but there's certain trades that have to be off limits and out of bounds, right? Mm, You really have to know who you are about what you're doing and what your mission is and what it's going to take to be successful in that mission. Um, And, you know, I think about, you know, where those values came from and how they evolved over time, you know, they really do describe us as a people in terms of why we've managed to live another day, you know, but why we've also managed to live another day by while also remaining true. That's right. And what we're doing. Yeah. Um, That's a temptation, isn't it? It is because there are, there are shortcuts. That's right. And some of those shortcuts are great, you know, yeah. And some of them aren't great. And whether they're great or not depends on who you are and what you're trying to accomplish and what trades are you willing to make. And that comes, you know, when you're hiring an executive who has like the industry experience that you really, really need. But, you know, we've made hiring mistakes like that, you know, bringing in people for the expertise, but then learning the hard way that they weren't as oriented around our mission or around the culture that we were trying to build. Sure. And so despite their expertise, it didn't work out. Right. Um, we yeah. had a number of ups and downs around that as we're just trying to figure out who we are. Yeah. Who we needed to be. Do you, um, are you familiar at all with Scott Harrison and Charity Water? No. Uh-uh. Maybe I've heard of Charity Water, but. So Scott Harris is the founder of Charity Water. Okay. Um, you would, you would geek out on him. He's just a great guy. I've had him on the podcast a few right times. And, um, you know, he went, his story is just awesome. I mean, he went from, in his own words, like just a complete lost, degenerate person. And he was uh, basically in New York for years, just organizing parties for rich people and in yeah. Ibiza and all that kind of stuff. And he woke up from a hangover in Ibiza one day and was like, what am I doing with my life? And so he's, he's like, God, I've wasted 10 years. I'm going to tithe one back to you. I got to figure yeah. out my life. And so he went and joined like some random, he's like, he said he applied to like several, like, uh, you know, peace, whatever things. And they rejected him. He's like, I'm, oh, no. <laughs> he's like, I'm trying to do good things. And people were rejecting me. Right. They uh, even take me. Long story short, he gets on some medical ship that's going around to, to places in the world. And he stumbles across the idea that man from talking to doctors, clean water is the real solution for a lot of the problems that are happening. Right. So he starts trying to raise money through all his contacts. He's literally going through his Rolodex at the time. All these billionaires and no one's, no one's, uh, no one's pitching him. Wow. And when he was getting feedback, the feedback was there's no uh, there's no transparency in this industry. Mm. Like we don't know where our money's going. We don't know how much is going to pay the person's salary versus the helping the people we're trying to help. And so that was his light bulb moment. He was like, "All right, I'm going to create a model in which you know that a hundred percent of your donation wow. goes to the actual building of the wells and the water and all that kind of stuff." And then he was like, "Well, how am I going to fund?" the overhead 
And he was talking to some other friends and they're like, you know, we get that. We will fund that. And wow. so he had two side-by-side bank accounts. One that if you invested in this, 100% went to the work. And then other people, he was like in their houses, giving them the pitch. Hey, would you believe enough in this cause to fund, you know, salaries, overhead, whatever, right? So he's like, from Smart day idea. one. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's crazy, man. They've blown up. But he's like, from day one, I was going to commit to never mixing the bank accounts, right? Wow. And he said, the problem was on one side, things were taking off. Like they were building wells, they were having money come in, they couldn't believe how much was going on, but they were they were starting to lag on the funding of the infrastructure. Oh no. And it got to like a bankruptcy close call. Wow. And he said literally his team was coming in there going, We have like a few million dollars in this bank account and almost zero in this bank account for payroll and whatever. I know you've got principles around this, but like just for a few months, let's loan some money out of there for there. And he said he was so close. Talk about these tests. Like he was so close to doing it. And he was like, no. And he made the call and he told the team, like, we're either going to go down with the model or we're going to like be successful with the model. Right. So yes, he says, let's no. go. That's motivating. Yeah. That's he says, motivating. no. Right. Here's what's crazy. That day, that day, somebody calls him and says, can I come in and talk to you? Right. Comes in and is like, hey, Scott, how's it going, man? And he starts crying. He's like, I gotta be honest. Like, this is working. My idea is working, but this part of the idea is failing and it's about to go under. And the guy's like, how much you need? He's like, what? He's like, how much you need? And he wrote him like a $2 million check that day. He's like, go deposit it. Here you go. This should keep the lights on for at least another year. All the glory to God, dude. Right? So, so anyways, he goes on and he's like, that was that moment. Like I could have cut a corner for the greater good. Or I could say like, this is the core values I have. This is what, what I feel led to do. I'm going to do it. Right. Um, so anyways, I haven't shared that yet on the podcast. Look, I, I think if you, I will seek that guy out because, you know, I think he and I would have a lot in common about how we entrepreneur and, you know, there are lots of ways to entrepreneur, right? There's no one way. There's exactly works for you and what you're trying to do in the world. And I think self-awareness, uh, and humility around that is probably the common thread, right? Absolutely. And that's, that was hard for me. You know, like, <laughs> it, I think one of the ways I had to grow as a leader and that this has forced me to, to grow as leader into is, you know, listening to that, you know, and for me, there are certain people that just have to be, you know, confronted with breaking down, you know, and before we really listen and before we change, yeah. and that's Absolutely. the best thing about this entrepreneurial journey for me as a founder is how it's changed me you know, and, and oh, man. person, like it's been amazing for me. I, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't know I needed all of that. Uh, you know, but, but it turns out I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because, um, God, I'm, I'm trying not to be too much in story mode. I want to hear from more from you, but, uh, there's a, have you ever seen the documentary 180 degrees South? No, I'm gonna write that down, bro. I'm turning you on to some fun stuff. All right, so Netflix, Netflix documentary. It's like a decade old, but okay. this group of friends tried to recreate the Patagonia and North Founders original trip they took, um, and wow. they, they so the original trip was they got in a van basically and drove south until they basically got to Patagonia on a surfing trip. Wow! And, but like this whole epic thing happens and their recreation of it and their own lessons and journey and whatever. But anyways, it ends with them interviewing Yvonne Chouinard in Patagonia about his trip and reflecting on it and how on climbing. Land, probably. Say again? <laughs> on his land down no, there. On his land. Yeah. yeah. 
Right. And um, as he's talking about it, there's just this one soundbite that I'll never forget. He was like talking about how things have changed, like climbing Mount Everest. He's like, you know, when I first climbed Mount Everest, as we said, back in my day, back in my day, a mountain used to change a man. Right. And he was like, what, he said the person that went up there was different than the person that came down because sure. of the because the incredible trials you went through. He yeah. goes, nowadays, you look on the mountain and there's 3,000 people in a line and they got yeah. ropes going up there. They have people carrying their bags. They have uh, chocolates waiting on their pillow when they get to right. base camp. Right. And he said, he goes, so the problem is you're an asshole when you start and you're an asshole when you get back. <laughs> I was like, that is, that is kind of true. Yeah. What you're talking about, like this journey you've been on has shaped you. Like that's been part of it. It's not just, did I succeed or not? And honestly, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Right. Like I I still don't know as far as we've come, like, I don't worry that ground floor is going to fail anymore. Yeah. Right. I don't, I'm not worried that we're going to run out of money tomorrow or not be able to continue. Um, because I, I feel some confidence about, you know, like going through COVID like we did and surviving that and, you know, doubling down on a model after, you know, through that process. And, you know, I, I, I feel like we have the right resources around us now where we can survive, mm. which is a great feeling. I'm grateful for that. Now the question is, okay, we fought so hard to get here. How do we take that and build it into something meaningful for all of the stakeholders around the company, our employees, our early investors, we yeah. now have 5,000 shareholders who own a part of ground floor. They own about 27% in aggregate. Wow. Now we've crowdfunded the equity of the company, you know, very consistent with our mission. I mean, people can still invest today. Uh, we're still raising on seed invest. We raise pretty much every year, you know? Um, and I feel like we have, we now have a responsibility to deliver on this mission at a greater scale and in a greater scope. Right. Right. And how quickly can we do that? How, you know, how can we take the resources that we've, you know, fought to put in place people and capital and customers and how can we double down and, and make more of that? Right. Yeah. To, to yeah. The mission. And I, I, you know, I, I don't want to be this sort of person who's never satisfied. I mean, I have a lot of satisfaction in what we've done, but I still feel like there's so much more to do and it's very motivating. You know, absolutely. Cause I know in order to do it, I'm still going to have to grow and change. You know, as right. an entrepreneur. I'm not done, you know, God's not done with me yet. Like he, I got a lot more to do. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure of it. And I'm far from a perfect, that's right. leader, you know, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's so good. I want to change topics real quick before sure, we yeah. get, before we get to um, the lightning round questions. Let's go. And it's, it's, it's around what, I, what one of the things I believe is unique about your business and, and what you've had to do, um, this crowdfunding element, this yeah. basically this, this perpetual need that the business you, you run has to get buy-in from people. Yes. Right? That yeah. is a skill that you guys have had to develop to Correct. consistently be able to pitch a vision and get people to buy in and put money into it and that kind of thing. Yes. Um, is there any quick tips? I know that there'd be a lengthy conversation. I'm sure you'd, but yeah. like, any quick tips for people, because at any business, whether you're crowdfunding or not, you've got to be able to know who are the people I'm going for and how do I connect in a compelling way and get them to buy into my service, my product, my idea. Um, so could you just talk to that for a second? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the fact is, uh, and I say this in a very loving way, nobody gives a shit about your crappy little startup. <laughs> yes. Okay. And that's just the truth. And yeah. I realized that at the very beginning, as proud as I was of it, 
as important as I thought it could be. Yeah. Nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now the corollary of that is when you are be are, are you when you are surveilling surveilling the landscape and engaging with people and you notice that somebody does care and they care enough to give you negative feedback or they care enough to complain about you on social media or they care enough to spend time you know critiquing your product or offering suggestions right pay attention to that mm. because in a world where nobody cares the people who show that they do care matter even wow more. yeah and we're competing for people's time and attention and motivation, whether they're employees, uh, angel investors, customers. And if you view it from that lens, it's a lot easier to endure the heartache of people telling you your baby's ugly, right? Because you realize they care enough to tell you that and there's something in there. Now, sometimes you realize, I just had an interaction with a customer yesterday, uh, like this on email where I had to tell him, I said, I just don't think this product and this concept is for you. Mm. You know, I, yep. I don't think it is. I, I wish it were. And maybe at some future point it will be. But what I'm hearing you say, you know, it's a nice way of firing a customer, right? Yeah. And yeah. you're doing that because you want to focus on the customers and the and the employees and the shareholders who really are with you. Yeah. And you have to be willing to realize that a lot of people aren't. And I think that to me, if you if you're looking for that then that colors how you respond to criticism and how you respond to people who, you know, you value the people who do sort of, you know, join you in the fight, you know, you yeah. value them even more. Yeah. Uh, and I think that has, look, I, you know, we've, <laughs> it wasn't easy to decide to go crowdfund the equity of the company. Right. Um, part of that was framed by just looking at our mission to you know, open up these private capital markets to people and say, why shouldn't the people who are buying the product have a chance to own a part of the company? Wow. Of course they should. Yeah. Now, we had to wait until we had a big enough audience to actually make that feasible, right? to supply enough capital. But fortunately, that has been true. We raised over $20 million from individual investors you know, over the years. Mm. Uh, and we'll keep doing that you know, because those people are participating in our future you know, and they are voting with their dollars, kind of like what your friend, you know, kind of like what you, um, yeah. this Scott Harrison, yeah. you know, sort of like him is like, you can put money in the account that helps the company to grow, or you can put money in the account that, you know, funds these real estate projects and you get paid as an investor for that, or yeah. you can do both. And most people do both, right? Yeah. Man, that's so good. Uh, it reminds me of the hard lesson I learned I make, I'm going to make it sound like I learned it personally from him, but I don't know him. Uh, but Seth Godin is a big proponent yes. of finding your tribe and, yes. and basically just saying like, man, we're all tempted to, to think everybody's our tribe and we need to convince and sell everybody. Right. And his, his thing was find the smallest viable group possible. So yep. they small, smaller than you're comfortable with, but viable, meaning they actually represent potential success for the thing you're right. trying to do. Right. And then local, he's like, lead them communicate yes. to them, get to know them, take care of them. Um, and that I think is a really great message where. Yeah. And it is, especially for building a company like this. I mean, this is an unknown product in an unknown category from an unknown company. Yeah. yeah. Right. It, it, it would have just amazed me that people would put their money in, you know, to fund these projects because whoever heard of this before. Right. Right. It, right. Joke <laughs> about sort of the Groucho Marx problem. Right. Which is like, I would never invest in anything 
in any investment that would have me, right? Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> like that's a real problem. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It's when people can get over that psychological barrier, you, you got to listen to that. And you got to pay attention to it and honor it. And I think that, I think there's a lot of wisdom there, you know? Yeah. And you got to be, and this is hard for me, man. I'm a feeler. So you, yeah. it's, you also got to be a little bit deaf to the critics that don't matter. There's plenty of critics that do matter. Yeah. Right? And that's your tribe. Oh, like, your tribe's, there's, there's a whole Facebook group out there that is just all about like lampooning us. Like every misstep oh. we make, like every loan that they think sucks, you know, they're out there telling us how shitty we are, you know, yeah. how we don't know what we're doing, you know, like during COVID they were like combing through our financials and saying, you know, the company owes $10 million on a credit line that it will not be able to pay back. And we've super sleuthed in there and figured out, well, guess what, dude, while they were writing all that shit, I found a way to pay it off. Yeah. It. Yeah. And it's now at zero and I have three times the amount of capital that I used to have, you know, for that part of our business. And so I just, how do you, how do you handle that? How do you handle stuff like that? Does it motivate you? Do you flip it? Do you forget it? What do you like? What, what do you do? I try to, I try to listen. Uh, I try to listen for it and understand what's there and try to try to listen to the counter argument that's, that's embedded in there, but keep going anyway. Yeah. You know, um, it, I mean, look, it's the man in the arena, right? Like, that's right. Like, look, you gotta, you gotta be in the arena. You gotta be fighting. And if people are catcalling you from the stands, they might be catcalling you because somebody's about to attack you from the rear. And you know, you want to pay attention to that. Sure. You want to be so egotistic that you just think they have nothing to add, but I don't engage with them because I know they don't like us. And I know they're cheering for our downfall and they're just, just there to make fun of us, but we do listen you know, we have people that will say, Hey, there's a post uh, out there and they're talking about this. You might want to know about it. And every once in a while we get a little value out of it. Yeah. Like we realize a way we could be better or something we mishandled. And I'm not about to go join their little Facebook group and engage <laughs> with them. Cause why, you know, right. right. You're, you're replying to every thread. <laughs> I'm not doing that. You know what I mean? But we yeah. know what they're saying. And sometimes we get some value out of it. You know, man, that's humble. I, I appreciate that. Um, you're right there. You know, there you can you can even learn wisdom from a fool. Right. So Absolutely. And I think those guys, to be clear, I think those guys are fools. For you sure. Know, they're very full of themselves. Like if you you would be you would not be surprised probably to hear how many people have told me that they know how to run our business better than we do. Yeah. And if yeah. we would just listen to them and, do, you know, I'm like, uh huh. OK. All right. <laughs> I get it. I get it. That's why I'm asking. I'm like, man, even in my small business, you know, at the stage it's at, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm just sensitive. It's my baby, you know? So you're like, you get, you get sensitive about stuff and I know I shouldn't be, but I, I'm, I'm learning like, all right, how do I build in some of that res, the emotional resilience? Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, you know, sometimes I get upset when people throw rocks at us. Right. Cause I'm human. Yeah. yeah. Right. But you got to realize they're, they're taking the time to throw a rock at you. Why is that? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they're not ignoring you. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there must be something there. That's good. All right, buddy. I don't want to. I don't. I want to uh, wrap this up before we run out of Let's time go. together. Let's yeah. do the lightning round. These are five All questions right. that we ask every founder on the podcast. Okay. Question number one: If you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would it be? Be true to yourself. Uh, into the entire, you know, in corporate life, 
the bigger the company gets, the more layers there are, the more departments there are, the harder it is to actually be yourself. Hmm. And I've lived that because I've been in some of those corporate, uh, you know, I want to build a culture where people have permission to do that. But even if we do that, people don't necessarily believe it. And so the one thing I want people, we have a value around authenticity. Hmm. And so that's, you know, to me, it's the most sacrosanct value on the list of eight, you know, that we, that we try to inculcate into the company to be successful. Awesome. I love that. Number two, what is the single best advice you've gotten about growing your business? And what was the worst? <laughs> uh, the single best piece of advice I got about growing the business was from a board member of ours who, uh, who I worked really hard to get on board as an angel investor. And, uh, and one day he uh, asked me out to coffee and I thought we were just doing an update. But at the end, he wrote a check, basically, uh, which was his intention. I didn't know that. I didn't know what it was <laughs> to convert him. Uh, ultimately, he, uh, he even joined our board. And he's been a, he was a VC for 15 years in Silicon Valley. Uh, he has been a super angel for 20 or 25 years. You know, one of the most sought after in the triangle area. Uh, and Bruce, um, <laughs> his advice to me was, look, Everybody thinks what you need to do is raise enough money to get to the next milestone. And that's not actually true. Mm. What you need to do is raise enough money to get to the next milestone and then have enough runway to raise the next round. Yeah. <laughs> on that milestone, right. And yeah. it, it was, it was reorienting for me because at one, in one way that sounds obvious, but actually most of us don't do that. Sure. And in fact, when, when I talk to founders, I love engaging with founders who, you know, who are, you know, looking to connect with other founders and share stories and help each other out. And I still see it, you know, like I've, I probably looked at two pitches this month where I saw the same problem. I'm like, you're not raising enough. And they're like, no, that's definitely enough. Da, 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 da. I'm like, no, you're not. And the reason yeah. you're not is because you have enough to get to this milestone. You don't have enough to get to the milestone and then go out and raise the next round of capital to get to your next milestone. You don't have enough. Right. And yep. it's a mistake we all make. We don't want too much dilution. We're afraid to ask for too much. Right. And I think, um, I think that was probably some of the best advice I got. The worst advice I ever got. Uh, wow. What is the worst advice? Something, and it doesn't have to be direct to you. Maybe it's something you've always heard floating around that you were like, you know what? I don't see it that way. I actually see it differently. Yeah. Nothing's coming to mind for me at the moment. Um, okay. I can't think of something that people, you know, where I've just really parted company, but I'm sure there are things because I tend to be a pretty opinionated person. Uh, I can't think of anything. Fair enough. All right. Question number three, what causes you the most stress or worry as the leader of your organization? People stuff. You know, Yeah. Uh, people who are misbehaving, <laughs> you know, uh, they're not bringing their best self to a conflict. Yeah, you know, they're um, engaging in kind of passive aggressive behavior because there's a coping mechanism, right? Oh, yeah. Helping people through that is uh, probably the thing that causes me the most angst today because we're at a scale where, you know, I can't do everything myself. Uh, it's even the people who report to me, you know, the executive team, they can't do it all themselves. We are yeah. really reliant upon a broader management team. And you know, you got a lot of moving parts in there, man, For you know, sure. human beings. Uh, and so I think the thing that keeps me up is just, you know, how to keep the human beings uh, working together 
bringing their best self to these situations, uh, feeling safe enough, you know, to actually be themselves, yeah. be true to themselves. And I, you know, when it's working, it's awesome because, sure. you know, people make these huge leaps and bounds in their career, you know, in terms of what they can do for themselves and their family and in the world. And that's very satisfying. But the flip side of that is, you know, people don't always live up to that. And yeah. it's hard to, it's hard when you see it and you're like, how can I help break that? You know, yeah. Yeah. I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Mm, that's great. Very common answer, by the way. So you're not, you're not alone in that. Um, okay. Number four, what is your current BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal? I want to take, uh, the model that we, that is working for us to grow the company, the go-to-market model that we're experimenting with. And I want to do it in 20 markets next year. And wow. we don't even have it working in one yet. Let's go. So, uh, so the big one is I, I want to see us, I want it's, it's a, it's a go-to-market model that we've been thinking about and iterating on for probably six or seven years. <laughs> and we've had some fits and starts, Yeah. but I feel like this is the year where we're going to nail it. And so, you know, the one that I'm throwing around to the, to the folks on the team who are thinking about this is, could we do 20 of them next year? Wow. You know, and if we do the company, you know, the company grew, uh, you know, it's grown 50 to hundred percent a year, which I'm proud of, you know, over the last few, several years. Um, you know, if we do that, it's going to three X, you know, in a year. Uh, and that would be amazing, right. To go through a growth spurt like that. So that's, that's what Let's go. It certainly is big, hairy, and audacious. And I like that. <laughs> 20 markets. I mean, you'll ping me next year and be like, how are you doing in your 20? I'll be like, uh, I've got three. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> get that, get that, get that stinking thinking out of here. I'm going to ping you next year and you're going to be in 25. We're also, we're also uh, OKR people, right? And we understand when you set your key result, you set it 100% is something that you probably can't get to, right? Yeah. yeah. But if you get to 70%, you're successful, right? Exactly. So, Exactly. Um, you know, we, we're used to thinking in terms of stretch goals. I love but that's it. a big stretch goal. That's a big one. Good. I like it. All right. Last one and my favorite one. It's a creative question. If you could hop into a DeLorean, go back to the past, you get to roll down the window and tell yourself one thing as you drive by. So you can't change anything. Yep. You just get to roll down the window, tell yourself something from the past. When would you go back and what would you tell your younger self? I would go back to sometime in the early 2000s and I would tell, I would say, you're already ready to be a founder. You should just do it. You know, come on. I, in retrospect, I did learn a lot through my journey and it's all good. I don't regret it. I met a right. lot of amazing people and I learned a lot. But I think I did not know myself and have confidence in myself as a founder back then. And I think. I could have done that job. I probably would have had a lot of fun doing it. I, it would have been a lot less painful because I found myself in a lot of situations where I didn't belong, you know? Mm. Uh, and I think I wish I'd have known that about myself earlier. Yeah. I love that. I love that, man. Bet, it's like bet on yourself sooner, right? Yeah. Or, you know, um, yeah, believe in yourself, bet on yourself. But, you know, honestly, I was, I was in a very different frame of mind back then. Yeah. You know, um, I had a very different life situation. I had a very different outlook in my life. You know, I was an atheist for 28 years uh, before coming to Christ in 2009. Yeah. And that really changed me, uh, humbled me a lot, sure. uh, you know, changed my outlook. And, you know, different people of different faiths. I mean, 
you know, it can happen to you with any faith, right? But I right. think faith is a, a very important element, uh, you know, in entrepreneurship, you know, done right. And it, yeah. people can probably do it without, I couldn't, you know, and I think, um, I think that that was a blocker for me, right? I just, I was a different person back then. Man, beautiful. Thank you for sharing the whole time you, you've shared uh, open and honestly, and it's been nothing but moving and inspiring for, for me and I'm sure for the audience. So Brian, my friend, thank you for being here. Uh, it's so cool to see what you've built, what you've been through, how you've endured it. And man, where the future is for you is bright and it's exciting. So, cause, and here's why it's exciting because a bright future for you means a bright future for a lot of people, right? Yeah. That's the what, thing you're building is going to, that's what I'm praying for. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you for I'm being here today. Blessed. You know what? I'm already blessed to get to do what I do the way that I do it. Uh, you know, now we're, we're playing for bigger stakes now. That's right. That's right. All right, brother. Well, thank you for stopping by today and enjoy your time on the mountains. Yeah, sure. I sure will. Yeah, thank you. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.